Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Greetings, 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 everybody. How's everybody doing out there? This is Jesse here from the YouTube channel, Jesse Vassal, and... So happy that you are here with me this evening, or if you listen to the archives, <laughs> that you that I will be happy that you listen to those as well. Whether you're listening live or the archives, it doesn't matter to me. As long as the message is getting out and and scales are getting removed, you know that's that's what's important. Um, because the more the scales get removed, the more people start waking up and uh, returning to the truth that has since been lost. Um, and uh, that is what uh, that is what my prayer is. You know, that's why, you know, even though these things are more than obvious to me, but um, I want to make it, you know, with God's help, hopefully that it'll be obvious to those that uh, have been and are being deceived. But there is a warning. There is a strong warning that that comes from uh, uh, turning back, and um, especially from the time of the Reformation. And I think Henry Grattan Guinness uh, really expounded upon uh, in his book Romanism and the Reformation how um, in 1887, you know, it was, it was over 300 years since the Reformation, and you know, and people got relaxed. They they got very relaxed, and you know they uh, just basically fell asleep, and so they turned back to darkness. And so, and this is this has been continuing since then, even look prior to that. You know, since the American Revolution and the French Revolution and these types of things. Um, and so I thought it would be quite fitting to open up this broadcast with reading Second Peter, chapter two. 20 verse 22 and I was listening to a video that um, that used this passage and I thought this would be a good passage to bring up and it states for after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ they are again entangled therein and overcome the latter end is worse with them than the beginning even worse than the inquisitions even worse than you know, the brutal tortures and these types of things. Because what does Jesus say? Fear not those that can kill the body, but fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay? Latter end is worse with them than, in, than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the soul that was washed to her wallowing in the mire and i thought 
it's a very fitting passage to uh, start this broadcast. Now, in this broadcast, this is going to be a very lengthy one, I do believe. And, um, you know, I'm going to try to cover as much as I can if I have to do a part two because the information I'm going to be presenting therein is going to really be mind-boggling. And so what I have uh, decided to do, as stated in the subscription, is um, I'm going to talk about some quotes called Words of the Beast. We're going to be looking at a section from a page out of remnantofgod.com that has all that not all of them there's plenty of more than what they what than what he posted but it gives you a really good idea we're going to be looking we're going to be looking explicitly at the words of the beast or I'm not, I'm not going to cover them all in this broadcast but uh we're going to look at the section of the of the papacy calling themselves God on earth okay and then I'm going to read a chapter from history of protestantism from um from the, from the development of the papacy from the times of Constantine to those of Hildebrand. And then, which is what I'm probably going to start off with first, and then I'm going to go into the current events. And those that are listening um, to this right now, you might know what some of these current events are because I created a PDF file and um, you know, and I put some interpretations in there of, of what certain things mean. That, the uh, 2030 agenda goals and these types of things that the Pope signed off on after his uh, um, visit to the UN and to the US. So here, let's go ahead and get started. And we're going to start off by a a chapter in history of Protestantism, development of the papacy from the times of Constantine to those of Hildebrand. And again, I think this is very important because, you know, in the midst of doing current events and doing other exposés on these broadcasts that I do two times a week, I think it'll help us develop and understand, you know, history as prophecy is fulfilled within it, you know, because prophecy is history fulfilled, you know, in advance. We can see prophecy being fulfilled all throughout history. And uh, so I figured it's it's important to kind of glance over and read portions of history in the midst of doing some of these broadcasts. I'm not saying read a whole book and stuff like that, but I do do that there on YouTube. Um, so you can go and check those out as well. So we're going to go and get started with uh, Chapter 3, Development of the Papacy from the Times of Constantine to Those of Hildebrand by J.A. Wiley. And the previous chapters basically was talking about the declension of the church, you know, uh, the, the basically, you know, the uh, the baptized paganism that creeped into the church, where at first the Caesars were persecuting Christians, and you know, and these types of things. You can read all about that in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and um, and then after a while, you know, things just started to settle down. You know, things just, you know, persecution just seemed to stop. And the Bible says those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Well, if there's no more persecution, it sure seems like something has gone wrong. You know, I know it's really really strange to say that, but it's through persecution that the light of God's truth has shined forth because of their testimonies. 
And and so what happened basically, you know, the the churches started to become more lukewarm, started to become more apostate, and as it states in Second Thessalonians, the falling away will happen first and the man of sin will be revealed. Well, the man of sin, you know, through a Justinian decree was revealed in five thirty eight. And the culmination of that was seventeen ninety eight. Now obviously there were hiccups here. He had the papacy. They still had you know, they gained some kind of temporal control here and there and these types of things, but they didn't have the same type of sovereign control as they had prior to this uh, 1,260 years of papal supremacy. You know, so but so that was basically the deadly wound. And then, you know, after a time, a lot of people attribute the deadly wound being healed or the starting of the healing of the deadly wound in 1929 when Mussolini recognized um uh, the papacy as a sovereign state again, you know, so, um, <laughs> you know, so that's why I think it's kind of interesting to go through this history. Now we're just going from the time of Constantine to those of Hildebrand. Okay. I mean, and basically the rise of papal supremacy started out very small in 538. Nothing's really much talked about it, you know, some people might kind of dilute history a little bit by saying, well, 538, the Ostrogoths were totally wiped out. Well, that's not necessarily the case. They suppressed them. They caused them to retreat, but they kept on coming back and being a headache. And eventually they were thrown out completely and done away with, you know. So the papacy started off very small, and then it grew. And we're going to be looking at this history here to prove how it grew. Okay, so... The development of the papacy from the times of Constantine to those of Hildebrand. Imperial edicts, prestige of Rome, fall of the Western Empire. The papacy seeks and finds a new basis of power. Christ's vicar, conversion of Gothic nations, Pepin and Charlemagne, the Lombards and the uh, Saracens, forgeries and false decretals, and election of the Roman pontiff. These are the top topics that are going to be discussed in this section of the show. <clears throat> so before opening our great theme, it may be needful to sketch the rise and development of the papacy as a political ecclesiastical power. Some people will say religio-political today, but in a sense it's the same thing. The history on which we are entering and which we must rapidly traverse is one of the most wonderful in the world. It is scarcely possible to imagine humbler beginnings than those from which the papacy arose. And certainly it is not possible to imagine a loftier height than that to which it eventually climbed. He who was seen in the first century presiding as a humble pastor over a single congregation and claiming no rank above his brethren is beheld in the 12th century occupying a seat from which he looks down on all the thrones, temporal and spiritual, of Christendom. How, we ask with amazement, was the papacy able to traverse the mighty space that divided the humble pastor from the mitered king? Okay, so let me repeat a portion of this. <clears throat> he who was seen in the first century presiding as a humble pastor over a single congregation and claiming no rank above his brethren is beheld in the 12th century occupying a seat from which he looks down Okay, so he's looking down upon the kings of the earth because he is at a higher position 
on all the because I'm because of on all the thrones, temporal and spiritual of Christendom. How we ask with amazement was the papacy able to traverse the mighty space that divided the humble pastor from the mitred king. We trace in the foregoing chapter the decay of doctors and manners within the church. That's what the first two chapters were basically about in history of Protestantism. Among the causes which contributed to the exaltation of the papacy, this declension may be ranked as fundamental, seeing it opened the door for other deteriorating influences and mightily favors their operation. Instead of reaching forth to what was before, the Christian church permitted herself to be overtaken by the spirit of the ages that lay behind her. There came an aftergrowth of Jewish ritualism, of Greek philosophy, and of pagan ceremonialism and idolatry. That's why you'll hear me call uh, Catholicism uh, sometimes baptized paganism. That's exactly what it is. And as a consequence of the threefold action, the clergy began to be gradually changed. As already mentioned, from a teaching ministry, quote-unquote, to a, quote-unquote, sacrificing priesthood. That's why in Protestant churches, well, prior to the fall of Protestantism in, minor, in, in recent years, you would not find an altar, a, quote-unquote, altar, you know, of sacrifice. In these churches, you would just have, you know, a stand and a pulpit. That's all you would have. You wouldn't have no altar. You wouldn't have no, you know, any of these things laid out. You know, and you go to all these churches. You go to a Seventh-day Adventist church, you'll see an altar there, you know. You know, because even the way they do communion in the Seventh-day Adventist church, you know, they have something that's, you know, the one I went to anyways, it was set up like an altar. You had this nice little white cloth hanged over a table of some sort and he had the bread and he had the you know the, the grape juice you know and these types of things and it was essentially the same thing okay <clears throat> you know i mean it, it wasn't really exactly the same as the eucharist eucharistic ceremony but at the same time they placed everything on an altar <clears throat> This made them no longer ministers or servants of their fellow Christians. They took the position of a, of a caste, claiming to be superior to the laity invested with mysterious powers. The channels of grace and the mediators with God. Thus there arose a hierarchy, assuming to mediate between God and man. And a hierarchy is basically you have places of position within the church, you know, and these types of things. You know, this one person is higher than the other, and you dare not question him. Okay? And so let's go ahead and move forward. The hierarchical uh, polity was the natural concomitant of the hierarchical doctrine. That polity was so consolidated by the time that the empire became Christian or need I say, quote-unquote, Christian, and Constantine ascended the throne, that the church now stood out as a body distinct from the state, and her new organization subsequently received an imitation of that of the empire, as stated in the previous chapter, helped still further to define and strengthen her a hierarchical government. Still, 
the primacy of Rome was then a thing unheard of. See, the thing is, is the true body of Christ, the true church, the true ecclesia, we are to acknowledge ourselves as brothers and sisters. Okay? Now, I, I, now I understand that there are those that are placed and called bishop and pastor and these types of things and so on and so forth. But even the bishop and the pastor and these types of things are not to consider themselves higher, but they too are to, be, are to consider those that sit among them brothers and sisters. Okay? Now there's a nice little deception going on with the Pope today. Okay. He calls he calls the church, you know, the you know, those outside the Catholic Church brothers and sisters. So before you take words out of my mouth, I just want to explain something to you. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay? Your neighbor is totally different than your brother in Christ. Your neighbor is essentially what would be called as an unbeliever. Okay? Not your brother. But since Vatican II, you know, since we had this dynamic shift from conservative to liberal in the Catholic Church, well, here the Pope is calling everybody, all other quote-unquote religions, brethren, brothers and sisters. So that's why you will hear Pope Francis talk about the Muslim brothers or the Hindu brothers and these types of things. Everyone is brethren. And hence, what does that do? Well, really essentially it brings Christ down on an equal plane with, every, with all the religions of the world. That's exactly what's happening. <clears throat> okay, that polity was so consolidated by the time that the empire became Christian and Constantine ascended the throne that the church now stood out as a body distinct from the state and her new organization subsequently received an imitation of that of the empire. Okay, her new organization subsequently received an imitation of that of the empire. The church had become paganized, baptized paganism. As stated in the previous chapter, helped still further to define and strengthen her hierarchical government, still the primacy of Rome was then a thing unheard of. Manifestly, the 300 fathers who assembled A.D. 325 at Nicaea knew nothing of it. For in their 6th and 7th canons, they expressly recognized the authority of the churches of Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and others, each within its own boundaries, even as Rome had jurisdiction within its limits at the time, and enact that the jurisdiction and privileges of these churches shall be retained under Leo the Great from 440 to 461. A forward step was taken. The Church of Rome assumed the form and exercised the sway of an ecclesiastical principality, while her head, in virtue of an imperial manifesto, 445 of Valentine III, which recognized the Bishop of Rome as supreme over the Western Church, affected the authority and pomp of a spiritual sovereign. 
Okay. So since we had this apostasy under Constantine, it basically the door was open for the man of sin to come in. Okay. So essentially they closed the front door and the church opened the back door. Still further, the ascent of the Bishop of Rome to the supremacy was silently yet powerfully aided by that mysterious and subtle influence which appeared to be indigenous to the soil in which his chair was placed. In an age when the rank of the city determined the rank of its pastor, it was natural that the Bishop of Rome should hold something of that preeminence among the clergy which Rome held among cities. Gradually, the reverence and awe with which men had regarded the old mistress of the world began to gather round the person in the chair of her bishop. It was an age of factions and strifes, and the eyes of the contending parties naturally turned to the pastor of the Tiber. They craved his advice, or they submitted their differences to his judgment. These applications the Roman bishop was careful to register as acknowledgments of his superiority. And on fitting occasions, he was not forgetful to make them the basis of new and higher claims. The Latin race, moreover, retained the practical habits for which it had so long been renowned. And while the Easterns, given way to their speculative genius, were expending their energies in controversy, the Western Church was steadily pursuing her onward path and skillfully availing herself of everything that could tend to enhance her influence and extend her jurisdiction. The removal of the seat of empire from Rome to the splendid city on the Bosphorus, Constantinople. So here we have Constantine essentially vacating the seat of the empire from Rome, moving it to Istanbul, Turkey, or as then was Bosphorus, Constantinople. And so now we have an empty chair. So let's continue which the emperor had built with becoming magnificence for his residence, also tended to enhance the power of the papal chair. It removed from the side of the pope a functionary by whom he was eclipsed and left him the first person in the old capital of the world. The emperor had departed, but the prestige of the old city, the fruit, fruit of countless victories and of ages of dominion, had not departed. The contest, which had been going on for some time among the five great patriarchates, Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Constantinople, and Rome, the question at issue being the same as that which provoked the contention among the disciples of old, which was the greatest, was now, restic was now restricted to the last two. The city on the Bosphorus was a seat of government, and the abode of the empire, this gave her patriarch powerful claims. But the city on the banks of the Tiber wielded a mysterious and potent charm over the imagination as the heir of her who had been the possessor of all the power, of all the glory, and of all the dominion of the past, and this vast prestige enabled her patriarch to carry the day. As Rome was the one city in the earth, so her bishop was the one bishop in the church. A century and a half later, in 606, this preeminence was decreed to the Roman bishop in an imperial edict of focus. 
Thus, before the emperor of the West fell, the bishop of Rome had established substantially his spiritual supremacy and influence of a manifold kind, of which not the least part was the prestige of the city and the emperor, empire, had lifted him to this fatal preeminence. Now, I want to talk about these five great patriarchates or these church settings, and I want to list one, which is Jerusalem. Why do, why do I say Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is basically the center of three monotheistic faiths, one being Judaism, one being Islam, and one our media calls Christianity, the three Abrahamic faiths. That in and of itself is a deception. Because it is not Christianity that's over there. It's Catholicism. It's Catholicism. Okay? It's not Christianity at all. And I'm going to be working on another file that I'm going to work on is when you look at the quote-unquote ISIS Islamic Caliphate and um, go ahead and do a search on this and type in... Uh, the, the 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 blueprint, the layout of the caliphate, okay, and look at it very closely. And then ask yourself, why does ISIS not really have anything to do with Israel? They're just going around conquering all these Muslim territories. Okay? Ask yourself that. And then when you look at that blueprint okay, you're going to realize that it is almost very, very similar, very similar to the blueprint that was laid out in the Bible that was called ancient Israel. I've heard people actually call ISIS actually Israeli secret intelligence services, okay, which would make sense. I mean, here the CIA, as Tom Press calls it, Catholics in action, uh, the, the the CIA, which was founded by Wild Bill Donovan, who was a Knight of Malta, created was a creation. Was Al Qaeda was a creation of the CIA, and you can essentially attribute ISIS as the same thing because we financed them. What do we got going on in the Middle East now? You have Russia coming in and they're bombing the quote unquote rebels, which the United States are against that. Now it is proven without a shadow. It, it's been proven that basically those rebels are ISIS members. All you got to do is look at pictures of these rebels, and you're going to see them carrying the ISIS flag. What does that tell you? That something's going on. Some people, some groups behind the scenes are fomenting this war, aren't they? And I believe they're fomenting this war to create a greater Israel in order to fulfill, to make it even more obvious to these Protestant Christians today of why we have to continue to support Israel and we have to continue to support the rebuilding of the temple because the final week in Daniel's 70th week is going to be fulfilled and we are going to be raptured out. Something to think about. 
But now the time has come when the empire must fall, and we expect to see that supremacy which had so largely helped to build up fall with it. But no, the wave of barbarism which rolled in from the, from the north, overwhelming society and sweeping away the empire, broke harmlessly at the feet of the bishop of Rome. Mm, they capitulated. The shocks that overturned dynasties and blotted out nationalities left his power untouched, his seat unshaken. Nay, it was at the, that very hour when society was perishing around him that the Bishop of Rome laid anew the foundation of his power and placed them where they might remain immovable for all time. He now cast himself on a far stronger element than any the revolution had swept away. He now claimed to be the successor of Peter, the prince of the apostles, and the vicar of Christ. All the way back to 606. The canons of council, as recorded in Hard the Wind, show a stream of decisions from Pope Celestine in the middle of the 15th century to Pope Boniface II in the middle of the 16th century. Directly or indirectly, this august prerogative when the Bishop of Rome placed his chair with all the prerogatives and dignities vested in it. Upon this ground, he stood no longer upon a merely imperial foundation. Henceforward, he held neither of Caesar nor of Rome. He held immediately of heaven. What one empire had given, another emperor might take away. What one emperor had given, another emperor might take away. That's a nice little interesting statement that Wiley made there. Because all you got to do is think of, well, let's just say the Constitution of the United States. All the patriots believe it's a good thing and we need to, def we need to defend the Constitution. Well, what Rome giveth, Rome can take away. And how is she taking it away? By simply just turning it around and redefining it. Why do you think we have Catholics in high positions of office today? Oh, well, someone will quote the L.A. Times article that says, no, the Jews run Hollywood and these types of things. Well, don't you think that they're being paid to say that? Especially when you look at the president of the L.A. Times and he's a graduate of Notre Dame. It did not suit the Pope to hold his office by so uncertain a tenure. He made haste, therefore, to place his supremacy where no future decree of emperor, no lapse of years, and no com coming revolution could overturn it. He claimed to rest it upon a divine foundation. He claimed to be not merely the chief of bishops and the first of patriarchs, but the vicar of the Most High God. With the assertion of this dogma, the system of the papacy was completed essentially and doctrinally. But not as yet practically, it had to wait the full development of the idea of vicarship, which was not till the days of Gregory VII. But here have we the embryonic seed, the vicarship, namely, out of which the vast structure of the papacy has sprung. So here in 606, you know, 538 basically gave the announcement that you know, the, the the papacy was to be the corrector of heretics and the head of the church. Okay, all right. And then roughly 70 years later, now the seed of vicarship has been planted. Now, not only 
is he start he's going to gain now not only has he gained primacy over the church now he's going to start to get his temporal power so the seed is growing <clears throat> but here have we the embryonic seed the vicarship namely out of which the vast structure of the papacy has sprung this it is that plants it at the center of the system a pseudo-divine jurisdiction and places the Pope above all bishops with their flocks, above all kings with their subjects. This it is that gives the Pope two swords. This it is that gives him three crowns. The day when this dogma was proclaimed was the true birthday of the Popedom. The Bishop of Rome had till now sat in the seat of Caesar. Henceforward he was to sit in the seat of God. From this time the growth of the Popedom was rapid indeed. The state of society favored its development. Night had descended upon the world from the north, and in the universal barbarism, the more prodigious any pretensions were, the more likely were they to find both belief and submission. The Goths, on arriving in their new settlements, beheld a religion which was served by magnificent cathedrals, imposing rites and wealthy and powerful prelates, presided over by a chief priest, and whose reputed sanctity and ghostly authority they found again their own chief druid. Those rude warriors who had overturned the throne of the Caesars bowed down before the chair of the popes. The evangelization of these tribes was a task of easy accomplishment. The quote-unquote Catholic faith, the Roman Catholic faith that is, which they began to exchange for their paganism or Arianism, consisted chiefly in their being able to recite the names of the objects of their worship, which they were left to adore with much the same rites as they had practiced in their native forests. Very, very important there. Let me reread this. The Catholic faith, which they began to exchange for their paganism and Arianism, consisted chiefly in their being able to recite the names of the objects of their worship, the pagans, were able to recite the names of the objects of their worship, which they were left to adore with much the same rites as they had practiced in their native forests. They did not much concern themselves with the study of Christian doctrine or the practice of Christian virtue. The age furnished but few manuals of the one and still fewer models of the other. So, hey, here these Gothic nations are realizing, well, I mean, you know, why not? You know, he's embracing what we embrace. It's just calling it by a different name, but he's embracing the same. <clears throat> so the first of the Gothic princes to enter the Roman communion was Clovis, king of the Franks. <clears throat> Excuse my frog in fulfillment of a vow which he had made on the field of Tolbiac, where he vanquished the Alemanni, Clovis was baptized in the Cathedral of Reims, 496. With each circumstance, the solemnity which could impress a sense of the awfulness of the right on the minds of its rude proselytes, the 3,000 of his warlike subjects were baptized along with him. The Pope styled him the eldest son of the church, quote-unquote a title which was regularly adopted by all the subsequent kings of France. When Clovis ascended from the baptismal font, he was the only as well as the eldest son of the church. 
So the eldest son of the church was a title which was regularly adopted by all the subsequent kings of France, the eldest son of the church. <laughs> well, we have only one head. We have only the son of God and not the kings of France, not the pope, but Jesus Christ. Okay. Again, when Clovis ascended from the baptismal font, he was the only as well as the eldest son of the church, for he alone, of all the, of all the new chiefs that now governed the West, had as yet submitted to the baptismal rite. The threshold once crossed, others were not slow to follow. In the next, in, in the next century, the sixth, the Burgundians of southern Gaul, the Visigoths of Spain, the Suevi of Portugal, and the Anglo-Saxons of Britain entered the Pale of Rome. In the 17th century, the disposition was still growing among the princes of Western Europe to submit themselves and refer their disputes to the pontiff as their spiritual father. National assemblies were held twice a year under the sanction of the bishops. The prelates made use of these gatherings to procure enactments favorable to the propagation of the faith as held by Rome. These assemblies were first encouraged, then enjoined by the Pope, who came in this way to be regarded as a sort of father or protector of the states of the West. Accordingly, we find Sigismund, King of Burgundy, ordering 554 AD that all assemblies should be held for the future on the 6th of September every year. Quote, at which times the ecclesiastics are not so much engrossed with the worldly care of husband husbandry, end quote. The ecclesiastical conquest of Germany was in this century completed. And thus the spiritual dominions of the Pope were still farther extended. <clears throat> in the 8th century, there came a moment of supreme peril to Rome. At almost one and the same time, she was menaced by two dangers, which threatened to sweep her out of existence, but which, in their issue, contributed to the strengthen her, but which, in their issue, contributed to strengthen her dominion. On the west, the victorious Saracens, having crossed the, the Pyrenees and overrun the south of France, were watering their seeds at the Loire and threatening to descend upon Italy and plant the crescent in the room of the cross on the north, the Lombards, who under Elbon, Elboin had established themselves in central Italy, two centuries before had burst a barrier of Apennines and were brandishing their swords at the gates of Rome. They were on the point of replacing Catholic orthodoxy with the creed of Arianism. Having taken advantage of the iconoclast disputes to throw off the imperial yoke, the Pope could expect no aid from the Emperor of Constantinople, so here this Arianism was, was an issue for the papacy. <clears throat> he turned his eyes to France. The prompt and powerful interposition of the Frankish arms saved the papal chair, now in extreme jeopardy. The intrepid Charles Martel drove back the Saracens at 732, and Pepin, the mayor of the palace, son of Charles Martel, who had just seized the throne and needed the papal sanction to color his usurpation, with equal promptitude hastened to the Pope help, hastened to the Pope's help, Stephen II, against the Lombards in 754. 
Having vanquished them, he placed the keys of their towns upon the altar of St. Peter and so laid the first foundation of the Pope's temporal sovereignty. You know, the two keys, all you got to do is look at the papal flag. Well, here's a history about it. The yet more illustrious son of Pepin, Charlemagne, had to repeat this service in the Pope's behalf. The Lombards becoming again troublesome, Charlemagne subdued them a second time. After his campaign, he visited Rome in 774. The youth of the city, bearing olive and palm branches, met him at the gates. The Pope and the clergy received him in the vestibule of St. Peter's and entering into the sepulcher where the bones of the apostles lie, quote-unquote, he finally ceded to the pontiff the territories of the conquered tribes. It was in this way that Peter obtained his patrimony, quote-unquote, the church her dowry, and the pope his triple crown. The pope had now attained two of the three grades of power and constitute his stupendous dignity. He had made himself a bishop of bishop, head of the church, and he had become a crowned monarch. Did this content him? No. He said, I will ascend the sides of the mount. I will plant my throne above the stars. I will be as God. Not content with being a bishop of bishops and so governing the whole spiritual affairs of Christendom. You give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile, okay? He aimed at becoming a king of kings and so of governing the whole temporal affairs of the world. He aspired to supremacy, soul, absolute, and unlimited. This alone was wanting to complete that colossal fabric of power. The popedom had towards this the pontiff now began to strive. Some of the arts had recourse to in order to grasp the covered dignity were of an extraordinary kind, an astounding document purporting to have been written in the 4th century. <clears throat> Here comes the, the, the forged documents now. Okay, An astounding document purporting to have been written in the 4th century, although unheard of till now, was in the year 776, brought out of the darkness in which it had been so long suffered to remain. It was the quote-unquote donation of testament of the Emperor Constantine. Constantine, says the legend, found Sylvester in one of the monasteries on Mount Soracti. And having mounted him on a mule, he took hold of his bridal rein, and walking all the way on foot, the emperor conducted Sylvester to Rome and placed him upon the papal throne. But this was as nothing compared with the vast and splendid inheritance which Constantine conferred on him. As the following quotation from the deed of gift to which we have referred will show, quote, We attribute to the see of Peter all the dignity, all the glory, all the authority of the imperial power. Furthermore, we give to Sylvester and to his successors our palace of the Latran, which is uncontestably the finest place on the earth. We give him our crown, our mitre, our diadem, and all our imperial vestments. This is why the popes to this day claim the title of Pontifex Maximus, because that was the title that was attributed to the Caesars. And this is what this forged document that they claim is valid states. And they adhere to it to this day. We transfer to him the imperial dignity. 
we bestow on the Holy Pontiff and free gift the city of Rome and all the western cities of Italy. To cede precedence to him, we divest ourselves of our authority over all those provinces, and we withdraw from Rome, transferring the seat of our empire to Byzantium, inasmuch as it is not proper that an earthly emperor should preserve the least authority, where God hath established the head of his religion, end quote. A rare piece of modesty, this on the part of the popes, to keep this invaluable document beside them for 400 years. And never say a word about it. And equally admirable, the policy of selecting the darkness of the 8th century as the fittest time for its publication. So pretty much, yeah, it was a forged document. It wasn't real. I'm pretty sure in the darkness they probably wrote it themselves. They said, this is the donation of Constantine. I believe that's been proven. But they adhere to it today, and they adhere to it this very day. I'm pretty sure they'll even call it a forgery, but they don't care. <laughs> to quote it is to refute it. It was probably forged a little before A.D. 754. It was composed to repel the, Longbar the, the Longobards on the one side and the Greeks on the other, and to influence the mind of Pepin. In it, Constantine is made to speak in the Latin of the 8th century and to address Bishop Sylvester as Prince of the Apostles, Vicar of Christ, and as having authority over the four great thrones not yet set up of Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, there's the biggie right there, and Constantinople. It was probably written by a priest of the Lateran Church and again its object, that is, it led Pepin to bestow on the Pope the exarchate, exarchate of Ravenna with 20 towns to furnish oil for the lamps in the Roman churches. During more than 600 years, Rome impressively cited this deed of gift, inserted it in her codes, permitted none to question its genuineness. You dare not question this document. <clears throat> and burn those who refuse to believe in it. There you go. The first dawn of light in the 16th century sufficed to discover the cheat. So yeah, it was basically brought out that this was a false document. It was basically written by the papacy themselves. In the following century, another document of a like extraordinary character was given to the world. We refer, we refer to the Decretals of Isidore. These were concocted about the year 845. They professed to be a collection of the letters, rescripts, and bowls of the early pastors of the Church of Rome. Anacletus, Clement, and others, down to Sylvester, the very men to whom the terms rescript and bowl were unknown. The burden of this compilation was the pontifical supremacy which it affirmed had existed from the first age. It was the clumsiest but the most successful of all the forgeries which had emanated from, that, from what the Greeks have reproachfully termed the native home of inventions and falsifications of documents. <laughs> oh, that's good. I've got to repeat that one. Okay, It was the clumsiest but the most successful of all the forgeries which have emanated from what the Greeks 
have reproachfully termed, quote, now this is what, you know, Rome is, this is what the Greeks termed Rome, quote, the native home of inventions and falsifications of documents, end quote. The Greeks are basically telling, asking you, who is the father of lies? Where is Satan's seat? Well, certainly if Satan is the father of lies, and Rome is the seat of the native home of inventory, inventions, and falsifications of documents, then that tells you that the dragon gave the beast its power and great authority, who is the father of lies. So who is the physical manifestation on this earth? The papacy. He was a liar from the beginning, right? The writer, who professed to be living in the first century, painted the Church of Rome in the magnificence which she attained only in the ninth, and made the pastors of the first age speak in the pompous words of the popes of the Middle Ages, abounding in absurdities, contradictions, and anachronisms. It affords a measure of, of the intelligence of the age that accepted it as authentic. It was eagerly laid hold of by Nicholas I to prop up and extend the fabric of his power. His successors made it the arsenal from which they drew their weapons of attack against both bishops and kings. It became the foundation of the canon law and continues to be so, although there is not now a popish writer who does not acknowledge it to be a piece of imposture. Quote, unquote, never, says Father D. Rignon, was there seen a forgery so audacious, so extensive, so solemn, so persevering. Here they are admitting it. Yet the discovery of the fraud has not shaken the system. The learned Dupin supposes that these decretals were fabricated by Benedict, a deacon of Mainz, who was the first to publish them, and that to give them greater currency, he prefixed to them the name of Isidore, a bishop who flourished in Seville in the 7th century. Without the pseudo-Isidore, says Janus, quote, there could have been no Gregory VII. The Isidorian forgeries were the broad foundation which the Gregorians built upon. And I believe Gregory VII was the one that was responsible for our Gregorian calendar today. That's why, really, when I look upon Saturday as the, as the Sabbath day, I'm trying to remove the word Saturday out of my mouth and just call it the seventh day. Well, it's a hard one, but, you know, that's just my personal conviction, you know. I, I can't say the same for you or anybody else out there, but that's just my personal conviction. Moving on. All the while, the papacy was working on another line for the emancipation of its chief from in interference and control. Whether on the side of the people or on the side of the kings, in early times, the bishops were elected by the people. Okay? Now, let me repeat that. All the while, the papacy was working on, a, on another line for the emancipation of its chiefs from interference and control, whether on the side of the people or on the side of the kings. In early times, the bishops were elected by the people. By and by, they came to be elected by the clergy with consent of the people. Sound familiar? But gradually, the people were excluded from all share in the matter, first in the Eastern Church and then in the Western. 
although traces of popular election are found at Milan so late as the 11th century. The election of the Bishop of Rome in early times was in no way different from that of other bishops. That is, he was chosen by the people. Next, consent of the emperor came to be necessary to the validity of the popular choice. Then the emperor alone elected the pope. Next, the cardinals claimed a voice on the matter. They elected and presented the object of their choice to the emperor for confirmation. Last of all, the cardinals took the business entirely into their own hands. Thus, gradually, was the way paved for the full emancipation and absolute supremacy of the popedom. And that's going to end this chapter. And uh, tomorrow's broadcast, we're going to be covering uh, the development of the papacy from Gregory the Seventh to Boniface, Boniface the Eighth. But for now, we're going to switch topics, and uh, we are going to cover some words of the beast. Words of the beast. Again, I have this in a PDF format, but you can actually go to remnantofgod.org and um, you'll be able to find this document here. And these are basically a lot of quotes that the papacy or the church to the papacy about the papacy has declared. So we're going to read a little from a portion of this of quotes of the popes declaring themselves God on earth in this broadcast. And it states, this is blasphemy number one in John 10.33. So let's go ahead and read that. We're going to start in John 10.32, and which states, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And in John 10.33 it states, The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because thou, that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Okay? So this is what the definition of blasphemy is. And I'm not saying Jesus was accused. I'm not. Jesus was not accused of blasphemy because he is God manifest in the flesh. But here we have a clear definition of blasphemy: that the Pope, being a man, declares himself to be God. Okay. So let's go ahead and look over some of these. First quote is out of Evangelical Christendom, January 1st, 1895, page 15. Quote, The Pope is not simply the representative of Jesus Christ. On the contrary, he is Jesus Christ himself under the veil of the flesh and who, by means of a being common to humanity, continues his ministry amongst men. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who is speaking. Does he teach? It is Jesus Christ who teaches. Does he confer grace or pronounce an anathema? It is Jesus Christ who is pronouncing the anathema and conferring the grace. Hence, consequently, when one speaks of the Pope, it is not necessarily necessary to examine, but to obey. There must be no limiting the bounds of the command, in order to suit the purpose of the individual whose obedience is demanded. There must be no caviling at the declared will of the Pope. 
and so invested with quite another than that which he was has put upon it. No preconceived opinions must be brought to bear upon it. No rights must be set up against the rights of the Holy Father to teach and command. His decisions are not to be criticized or his ordinances dispute, disputed. Therefore, by divine ordination, all, no matter how august the person may be, whether he wear a crown or be invested with the purple or be clothed in the sacred vestment, all must be subject to him who has had all things put under him. And folks, this was only written 120 years ago. Now, flash forward to 2015, folks. Here we have this J.S. Philip, Evangelical Christendom, January 1st, 1895, stating what this Pope has, you know, what the what the Pope has stated. And here we have the colonial period, which was overwhelmingly protestant at the time. And here we have the papacy who came to these shores, I don't know if he kissed the ground or not, he might have, but maybe John Paul II kissing the ground was enough, and therefore, you know, they don't have to, you know, everyone knows that the ground here on the U.S. soil belongs to the papacy, but nonetheless, here we have a country, prior to the Declaration of Independence, that was overwhelmingly Protestant, Virtually 95 to 99% Protestant. And here we have people today claiming to be Protestant, but yet they are worshiping the same guy who is calling himself Jesus Christ, who is declaring that if does the Pope speak, it is Christ who's speaking. Does he teach? It is Christ who teaches. And he ought to be obeyed. You're not even to be able to think contrary to it. But yet now, the Pope is revered. And need I remind you of Second Peter 2.20? Let's read verse 2.21. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again in the soul that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. This is the rule of the day. This is the Laodicean church. These words appeared in the Roman canon law, quote, to believe that our Lord God the Pope has not the power to decree as he has decreed, is to be deemed heretical. Okay? The Gloss Extravagantis of Pope John XXIII. Okay? Father A. Pereira says, quote, It is quite certain that popes have never approved or rejected this title, Lord God the Pope, for the passage in the gloss referred to appears in the edition of the canon law published in Rome in 1580 by Gregory the 13th. Here's another one. Quote, it seems that Pope John Paul II now presides over the universal that is Roman Catholic Church from his place upon Christ's cross. End quote. Auckland Bishop says, Pope presides from the cross in Auckland, New Zealand, September 20, 2004, zenit.org. 
And what's very interesting, and those that might be listening to this might remember a video I sent, a documentary. It's, it's, it's a pro-Catholic documentary, but it's basically about, about Vatican II. And these Catholics are basically extreme conservatives, all right? They are extreme conservatives. And you can go and actually look at their website and see what they say, um, see what they talk about and these types of things. They, their videos exposing Protestantism and, fo- and, and exposing this new ecumenical Catholicism, which they are totally against. They want to go back to the original Council of Trent. They need this. But see, just like the uh, political party, the divide in the political party today, you have the right, you have the left, but both of them work for the common goal. Okay, and that common goal is to be sub is to promote and exonerate the first beast. Okay, same thing in Catholicism. You have the divide. You have the left and the right. You have the conservative and you have the liberals. The liberals, you know, got this uh, got this nice little pomp going on. They're acting like uh, men of peace and these types of things, and they're all acting all ecumenical. Let's all join together. Let's all do this. Let's all do that. And here you have the conservatives that no, 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 no. Let's go back to racking, putting people in the stake. Let's go back to the Council of Trent. These popes, since John the Twenty-Third, are considered anti-popes. They're not even real popes. They have polluted the papal chair, and therefore they're going to bring upon us the wrath of Mary. Okay, <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds, that's basically what they believe. But rather it's left, rather it's right, it all goes to support the same aim, and that's the acknowledgement of the papal chair as supreme ruler on this earth. This is why I try not to meddle in the whole political system, you know, these types of things. I just pay attention to what they say and what they don't say, regardless of what side they're on. Because both agendas aim to achieve the main agenda, and that is to exonerate the Pope as supreme ruler on this world. Or acknowledge, sorry. Here's another quote. In founders and foundresses of the consecrated orders of nuns and priests, etc., we see a constant and lively sense of the church, which they manifest by their full participation in all aspects of the church's life, and in their ready obedience to the bishops and especially to the Roman pontiff. Against this background of love towards holy church, the pillar and bulwark of the truth, and they quote 1 Timothy 3.15. Oh, my goodness. We readily understand the devotion of St. Francis of Assisi. This is where where Pope Francis laid claim that he derived his name from, St. Francis of Assisi. But there was another Francis, by the way, which was a co-founder of the Jesuit order called Francis Xavier. Okay. So, as a pope, being a Jesuit priest that he is, he got to understand his way of thinking. His way of thinking is Jesuit thinking. <clears throat> so on, so in the public square, here is St. Francis of Assisi, loves creation, the beauty of creation and these types of things, wants to save creation, brings himself out as a man of peace. But then on the other side, the hand that's under the table, Francis Xavier was the co-founder of 
the Jesuitical order, whose sole duty is to end Protestants and see that they be put to death. Okay, we readily understand the devotion of St. Francis of Assisi or for the Lord Pope. The daughterly outspokenness of St. Catherine of Siena towards the one whom she called sweet Christ on earth, referring to the Pope. The apostolic obedience and the centire cum ecclesia of St. Ignatius Loyola and the joyful profession of faith made by St. Teresa of Avila. I am a daughter of the church. We can also understand the deep desire of St. Teresa of the child Jesus. Quote, in the heart of the church, my mother, I will be loved. These testimonies are representative of the full ecclesial communion, which the saints, founders, and foundresses have shared in diverse and often difficult times and circumstance. They are examples which consecrated persons need constantly to recall if they are to resist the particularly strong, configual, centrifugal, and disruptive forces at work today. A distinctive aspect of ecclesial communion is allegiance of mind and heart to the magisterium of the bishops, which is the papacy, an allegiance which must be lived honestly and clearly testified to before the people of God by all consecrated persons, especially those involved in theological research, teaching, publishing, catechesis, and the use of the means of social communication, social communication, socialism, because consecrated persons have a special place in the church, their attitude in this regard is of immense importance to the whole people of God, end quote. Pope John Paul II, Apostolic Exhortation of the Consecrated Life and its Mission in the Church and in the World. Here's another one, quote, It seems that Pope John Paul II now presides over the universal church from his place upon Christ's cross said Bishop Dunn, who traveled with seven other prelates to Rome, taken from an article entitled Auckland Bishop, says Pope Versailles from the Cross, Auckland, New Zealand, September 20th, 2004. And here's another one. The Pope is of great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God. Ferreris, Ecclesiastic, Ferreris Ecclesiastical Dictionary. Quote, all names which in the scripture are applied to Christ by virtue which is established that he is over the church, all the same names are applied to the Pope. And guess what? Both the right and the left, they acknowledge this. Again, watch that documentary, Vatican II Apostasy, and you're going to see, I mean, they are very open about what they believe. It's, it's obvious. Hopefully you can read through the rigmarole that they spew out but it should be obvious to those that are in the know. It's it's a really good, it's it's really a good uh, practice of dis, of of learning discernment. Really, I, I mean, me personally, I think it's 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 a really good documentary for that purpose. Just like the Global Vatican, the book of Global Vatican, it's the same thing. You can if you can read through the Global Vatican and read through the rigmarole and read what it's actually saying behind the words. Then, my friends, you are you are on a very, very good road of being able to discern truth and error. Uh, 
From Pope Pius V, quoted in Barclay, chapter uh, 27, page 218, quote, a pope and God are the same, so he has all power in heaven and earth. Another one, quote, the pope is, as it were, God on earth, sole sovereign of the faithful of Christ, chief of kings, having plenitude of power, end quote. That was Luciferus, Impompta, Bibliotheca, Canonica, Juridica, Moralis, Theologica, Theologica, uh, Ascetica, Polemica, a lot of cuz. <laughs> Volume 5, Article on Papa, Article 2, titled Concerning the Extent of Papal Dignity, Authority, or Dominion, and Infallibility. Here's another one. This is quoted in, in the New York Catechism. Quote, the Pope takes the place of Jesus Christ on earth. By divine right, the Pope has supreme and full power and faith and morals over each and every pastor and his flock. He is the true vicar, the head of the entire church, the father and teacher of all Christians. He is the infallible ruler, the founder of dogmas, the author of and the judge of councils, the universal ruler of truth, the arbiter of the world, the supreme judge of heaven and earth, the judge of all, being judged by no one, God himself on earth. I will ascend to the sides of the north. I will be like the most high. Can't you see Satan? When you see the Pope, can't you see him? The dragon gives him his power and great authority. And to the, the, the thing, the amount of people that were worshiping this man as he was here. Writers on the canon law says, quote, the Pope and God are the same. So he has all power in heaven and earth. This is what they teach, folks. Here's another one. Pope Nicholas I declared that the appellation of God had been confirmed by Constantine on the Pope, who, being God, cannot be judged by man. End quote. Quote, the Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man. No, he is, as it were, God on earth, sole sovereign of the faithful of Christ, chief of kings, having plenitude of power. This is from Leo VIII on the chief duties of Christians as citizens. Quote, the supreme leader in the church is a Roman pontiff. Union of minds, therefore, requires complete submission and obedience of will to the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. Why look for an antichrist in the future? Can't you see it with him? I mean, this is coming from the horse's mouth, folks. They're not denying it. They don't deny it. Decretals of Gregory the Ninth, quote, God separates those whom the Roman pontiff who exercises the functions, not of mere man, but of the true God, dissolves, not by human, but rather by divine authority, end quote. Hence the Pope is crowned with a triple crown as king of heaven and earth and of the lower regions, meaning hell, infernorum, end quote. That was from Prompta Bibliotheca, 1763, volume 6, Papa 2, page 26. Here's another quote, The Dignity of the Priesthood, by Ligori, page 36, quote, Innocent III has written, quote, Indeed, it is not too much to say that in view of the sublimity other offices, the priests are so many gods. They can forgive sin. Quote, the Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, he is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh. End quote. Catholic National, July 1895. 
This is really, this was only 105 years ago. 120. 120 years ago, sorry. Pope Leo XIII, encyclical letter of June 20th, 1894. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. From Rob and Kosar's History of the Councils, volume 9, uh, column 109, quote, For thou art the shepherd, thou art the physician, thou art the director, thou art the husbandman. husbandman. Finally, thou art another God on earth. You feeling righteous and indignant yet? Or is this just something we need to brush off and attribute this guy as coming in the future? as the Antichrist, because we don't have to worry about him, because we're going to be raptured out of here. And hey, you know, hey, and they're going to put a show on for you guys, because they're going to fulfill their 70th week prophecy, and therefore at that time, there is going to be no denying who the Antichrist is, buddy. <laughs> because God sends you a strong delusion, and you believe a lie, but you're going to end up damned if you don't come out of it. You got people coming at me the other day. Like, oh, no, you can't lose your salvation. Really? Why don't you read the end of Romans 13? What about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Okay. What about the passage I just read you? You can't lose your salvation? Really? <laughs> Well, what happens if you return to your to its own vomit as a dog? A dog is turned to his own vomit again. What happens about departing from the faith? Well, they never were saved to begin with. Ah, you know what? See, the thing is, yes, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Okay? It is a gift from God. But you still have the aspect of choose you this day whom you will serve. It is a gift from God. Let me give you an example. It's a gift from God. It's from God. God gives you this gift of salvation, right? Gives you this gift of salvation. Now, let's look at a parable, for example. And the parable is this. Say you come, say you're a father, and you go to the store and you buy your son a gift. It's a very expensive gift. It's a precious gift. Something your son's been desiring for a long time. Okay? And so you bring it home, you wrap it up, you give it to, to you know, you, get, you give it to your son. And he says, here, I have a gift for you. Just don't lose it. <laughs> you know? I paid a huge price for this gift. Don't lose it. Okay? And so the son opens up the gift, and he is amazed. His heart melts. You know, two or three years down the road, you know, he gets in contact with other trinkets and gadgets.
Okay. That was very interesting. And I was uh, I was booted off. So where was I? This you know, this child is looking aimlessly for his gift and he can't find it. And it becomes harder and harder for him to find it. Okay? There's an example. And he looks too hard and he finally just gives up. See, God gives you this gift. Okay, God gives you this gift. But he also says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Many people want to accept Jesus as Savior, but then they stop right there and they refuse to accept him as king. Folks, he's coming back as a king. He's coming back as a king. Don't we want to submit to him as a king? Or are we going to submit to the primacy of the papacy? The title, Lord God the Pope, is found within a gloss of extravagances of Pope John XXIII. And another one, let's see, Roman Catholic canon law stipulates, though, through Pope Innocent III, that the Roman Pontiff is the vice regent, the vicegerent upon earth, not a mere man, but of a very God. And in a gloss on the passage, it is explained that this is because he is the vicegerent of Christ, who is very God and very man. Okay. And, you know, actually Pope Francis says this, that Christ is, is, is God and man. You know, Pope Francis acknowledged that God is a man. You know, Jesus Christ was a man. And you know what? He was right in saying that. But see, here's the thing. When he says that, even though he was right in saying that, he is attributing that to himself. Okay? Because, yes, Jesus was God manifests in the flesh. And you know what? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ appeared to the doubting Thomas, or when he appeared to the disciples, he says, look, you know, I'm not a spirit. You know, a spirit is, you know, doesn't have flesh and bone as you see me have here. Touch me. And then he went in so far as do you have something to eat? Now, does a ghost eat? Does a spirit eat? I don't think so. So, yes, when Pope Francis said that very thing, he was right. He was absolutely right. Okay? <laughs> but you got to understand who this man is because he attributes the title of, of what Jesus Christ is to himself. So even in those very words... He speaks a lie. Okay? Got to understand, this is Satan we're talking about here because Satan works through the papal chair. Satan works through the papacy. The Pope is the supreme judge of the law of the land. He is a vicegerent replacement of Christ who is not only a priest forever, but also he's not only a priest. So now he attributes himself as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, basically. You know that passage in Hebrews? So he is also a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, He who is not only a priest forever, but also king of kings and lord of lords. That was March 18, 1871, quoted in Leonard Woosley's Bacchion and Inside View of the Vatican Council. 
American Track Society. And here's a one that uh, some of us might know very well. The last line of the 1302 A.D. Bull Unum Sanctum issued by Pope Boniface VIII states, quote, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. And you know what? All the systems that the government places here on this earth, that our government here in the U.S., every last jot and tittle of it, every single law that pursues out of the mouth of this government, since, uh, let's, you know, I might be speaking moderately here, but let's just say since 1913, you know, the Federal Reserve Act, all of these types of things, this is where you got, uh, I know some are going to get upset when I say this, the, the social system, the welfare states, social security, and these types of things, that was all enacted in 1915. And you know what? You know what? The U.S. places an image to the beast, and the U.S. will cause, cause all to worship that image, cause all to wander after this beast. Because it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. And they are acknowledging that today, folks. It might be hard to see it today, but there's going to come a time when it's going to be blatantly obvious and you're going to have a choice to make. You're on welfare. You're depending on the government. You have lost faith in Christ and you are acknowledging Antichrist. That is if you don't make a choice. And by not making a choice, that is in and of itself a choice. Christ entrusted his office to the chief pontiff, but all power in heaven and in earth has been given to Christ. Therefore, the chief pontiff, who is his vicar, will have this power, end quote, Corpus Juris, chapter 1, column 29, translated from a gloss on the words, Poro Sobisa Roman Pontiff. Here's another one from La Civilta Catholica. Quote, the Pope is the supreme judge of the law of the land. He is the vicegerent of Christ and is not only a priest forever, but also king of kings and lord of lords. And Protestants, like a dog, has returned to its vomit. Quote, this is from, this was published in fourth session of the Vatican Council in 1870. Quote, all the faithful must believe that the Holy Apostolic See and the Roman Pontiff, the Pope, possesses the primacy over the whole world. And the Roman Pontiff is the successor of Blessed Peter, Prince of the Apostles, and is true Vicar of Christ and head of the whole church and father and teacher of all Christians, and that full power was given to him and blessed Peter to rule, feed, and govern the universal church by Jesus Christ our Lord, end quote. Primacy over the whole world. Okay, now here, you know, the First Vatican Council in 1870, this is basically when the, um, this was basically an acknowledgement, okay, and in Vatican Council II, really was more of an explainer of this, that 
All you got to realize is who the Holy Father is and who what what he is about, you know, and acknowledge him as such, and, you know, you can come back to Mother Church. It's just that simple. You can keep your titles, you can keep your denominations, you can keep whatever. By the way, SDA member Ben Carson acknowledges the Pope as a holy leader, regardless if he keeps the Sabbath day or not. So thereby, since he's acknowledging that the Pope is a holy, is the holy leader, what is he essentially saying? Is he worshiping the dragon who gave power unto the beast? I'll leave you to decide on that one. I'm going to read one more here. And this is from Ignaz von Dollinger, quote, a letter addressed to the Archbishop of Munich, 1871, as quoted in McDougall, the Act of Newman Relations. Fordham University Press, page 119 and 120, quote, the Pope's authority is unlimited and calculable. It can strike, as Innocent III says, wherever sin is. It can punish everyone. It allows no appeal and is itself sovereign caprice for the Pope arrays according to the expression of Boniface VIII all rights in the shrine of his breast, as he has now become infallible. He can, by the use of the little word, or be, which means that he turns himself round to the whole church, makes every rule, every doctrine, every demand into a certain and incontestable article of faith. No right can stand against him, no personal or corporate liberty, or as the Roman Catholic canonists put it, quote, the tribunal of God and of the Pope is one and the same. Pope John XXIII in his homily to the bishops and faithful assisting at his coronation on November the 4th, 1958, quote, the Savior himself is the door of the sheepfold. I am the door of the sheep. Into this fold of Jesus Christ, no man may enter unless he be led by the sovereign pontiff, and only if they be united to him can men be saved. You have to come back to the church, because that is the only way you're going to find salvation. For the Roman pontiff is the vicar of Christ and his personal representative on earth, end quote. There's uh, more quotes re regarding this uh, section here um, of the post declaring to be God on earth. I hope I read enough of them that you get the point. <clears throat> but some of you are just going to acknowledge that he's well, he's just a false prophet. You know, he's just a false prophet that's going to bring about the Antichrist because we're going to be raptured out of here and, you know, there's seven more years left to go before Christ comes back. You know, and, the, you know, no one signed the seven-year peace treaty with Israel yet, so you know what? Nah, you're full. Of, you know, you're full of it. You're, 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 you don't have the Holy Spirit. You got this. You got this. You're teaching doctors of devils, blah, 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 blah. Man, you know, they just throw you away these days. They just throw you away.
that's why a lot of these broadcasts are very much quiet. It's like you're talking into an empty room. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> I mean, all you got to do is just, I mean, for example, you, I mean, you can just go, you can just go on my YouTube page. And I mean, you know, I'll, you know, 20 views, 30 views, 40 views. But you take someone that's preaching the rapture now. Oh, you're speaking to us smooth things. We'd like that. And now maybe YouTube is actually maybe controlling the view counts and stuff like that. I might be getting more than what I know. I don't know. But I do know that, hey, if someone's taught, teaching the rapture, he's teaching futurism, hey, well, you know what? He's in good hands. We're going to give him the views. And now I'm not saying this out of jealousy. You know, there are plenty that, that do this. Um, and well, all I got to do, for example, look at the people on First Amendment Radio. Tom Fress, uh, uh, Greg Anthony, you know, and these types of people. Uh, Nicholas Arthur. <laughs> I mean, okay, they, I mean, they might have a couple people in their chat rooms. But, folks, it is essentially speak like speaking into an empty room. Because like a dumb dog, these people have turned back to their vomit. They have turned back into darkness. And it's worse than what it was before. So in tomorrow's broadcast, we're going to be covering um, uh, uh, some quotes declaring the Pope infallible. And we're going to reading, be reading another chapter out of history of Protestantism. And uh, I might be getting into some more current events, too, because I want to get into the aspect of, uh, I want to look more into uh, the Islamic Caliphate and the, the map layout that they uh, so um, graciously gave us, <laughs> you know, um, and these types of things. But... We're going to go through some current events, and it just gets uh, gets more interesting now from here. Now, U.S. is on the ropes. This is out of uh, oh, GovernAmerica.com, and it states, U.S. on the ropes, China to join Russian military in Syria while Iraq strikes intel deal with Moscow, Tehran. And obviously, I'm pretty sure if you've been following this whole rigmarole of what's going on over there in the Middle East, and, you know, and, you know, they're, you know, Russia has been conducting airstrikes and bombings through their naval vessels and these types of things. Basically, it's turned into an all-out war over there, and well, I mean, you gotta you gotta ask yourself who is behind these wars. Last Thursday, this was uh, this was nine twenty seven two thousand fifteen. Last Thursday, we asked if China was set to join Russia and Iran in support of the Assad regime in Syria. Okay, now I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna explain this again. I'm gonna explain this to you again. Okay, I am somewhat convinced that the that Assad and his actual supporters are a de facto government, okay? And so they don't want to go along with this new world order. 
just like Gaddafi, okay, if you look into Gaddafi and these types of things, he didn't want a central bank established in his nation. He wanted his currency to be backed by gold and these types of things, but no, 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 no. You, you either become subject of the powers that be or you're out, and they ousted them. This is the same purpose here. Now, who is behind these wars? Okay, well, let's look at a little bit on the surface. So basically, you have the Assad regime, which the U.S. coins the rebels that who they're. This is you know, and so well, Russia is supporting, is attacking these rebels that are against Assad. And so, but U.S. is supporting those rebels. Well, here's the little twist here. Those rebels is, in fact, what is ISIS. And ISIS is the same as Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda is a creation of the CIA who was founded by Wild Bill Donovan, Donovan, who was a knight of Malta, who was subject to the Vatican. Now, when you put that together... Who is actually working behind the scenes, fomenting these wars between the one side and the other? Well, obviously, it's the Vatican in order to achieve an aim, and that is to, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Promote the New World Order agenda. And so all the sides are being drawn in over the Middle East. And what's going to happen out of the ashes of this? Well, only time will tell. But I can almost guarantee you, almost, not for sure, you know, because this is still up in the air. I'm not sure. I can't say this is going to happen this way. But I can almost guarantee you it has a lot to do with fulfilling their futurist agenda. To set up a peace treaty with Israel, and then have a phony Antichrist come in three and a half years into it, cause the sacrifices and oblations to cease after they rebuilt the temple and animal sacrifices continued. And then once he's done away with, seven years later, then here comes the Pope, the papacy, Christ vicar on earth. And, well, all the raptures didn't pan out, and Catholicism has told you so, it's going to, no, it's going to be post-trib, you know. And so people are then just basically going to really be throwing out their Bibles at some point because they're going to acknowledge the papacy as God. And then those that are still shouting out that the papacy is a real antichrist, well, this guy's a man of peace. What are you doing, you fundamentalist? Take him to the jail, lop his head off, and that's it. And those people are going to be assumed Christian, and they're going to be believing that they are doing God a service. Now, I'm not saying that's for sure how it's going to go down, but it is definitely a very possible outcome. Okay. I'm not even going to go ahead and read the article. If if, if the, those that have received this PDF, they already know what it says. But I am going to scroll down. And 
I'm going to scroll down to Daniel 8.25, which states, And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. And I put in there the papacy masquerading himself as a man of peace. But behind the scenes, you've got to remember, he's holding one hand on the table, he's got another hand under the table holding the gun. And by peace, he is destroying many. Okay, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And that craft there is a very interesting word. It comes from the Hebrew word mirma, mirma, which means deceitful, deceitfully, false, feigned. It's a false piece, okay, but it's a very subtle piece. And that word craft actually means subtly. Who was the most subtle beast of the field in the beginning? Wasn't it the serpent? Wasn't it the dragon? And the dragon works through the Vatican? And here is this so-called man of peace, this Pope Francis and all the other popes before and the popes after. By peace shall he destroy many, and by peace he's destroying many. A lot of people like to lay claim, oh, the papacy is too old an organization. People have been exposing this the whole time, and come on, it can't, it's got to be somebody else. It's got to be the Zionists, folks. The, pape, the Pope himself is the, is the number one Zionist in the world. He is the Zionist. <laughs> okay? And Revelation seventeen eighteen, and the woman, which is the Roman Catholic Church, which is the beast that rose up out of the sea in Revelation 13, which thou sawest is that great city, the Vatican, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Okay? She reigneth over the kings of the earth. And God will, one day will put into the kings of the earth, into their hearts, to turn on her and make war on her, and eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Okay? <sighs> now, I'm going to give, go back to a few pieces of history here. And this is Pike's letter to Mazzini. This was uh, August 8th. Uh, Albert Pike received a vision, which he described in a letter that he wrote to Mazzini, dated August 15th, 1871. And the Pike's letter to Mazzini is, uh, it, is it is commonly believed fallacy that for a long time the Pike letter to Mazzini was on a display in the British Museum Library in London. And it was copied by William Guy Carr, former intelligence officer in the Royal Canadian Navy. The British Library has confirmed in writing to me that such a document has never been in their possession. Furthermore, in Carr's book, Satan, Prince of This World, Carr includes the following footnote. Quote, the keeper of manuscripts recently informed the author that this letter is not cataloged in the British Museum Library. It seems strange that a man of Cardinal Rodriguez's knowledge should have said that it was in 1925, end quote. Okay, so, and then here we have the aspect of these three world wars that were predicted 
or the, this idea of these world wars, okay? And the First World War was to be brought about in order to permit the Illuminati to overthrow. You can just really substitute Illuminati for Jesuit, you know, Jesuit of control. Jesuits control the Illuminati. And so they will permit the Illuminati, Illuminati to overthrow the power of the Tsars in Russia and of making that country a fortress of atheistic communism, making that country a fortress of atheistic communism, that divergences caused by the Asian tour or agents of the Illuminati between the British and Germanic empires will be used to foment this war. At the end of the war, communism will be built and used in order to destroy the other governments in order to weaken the religions. This is also the aspect of the establishment, the establishment of hurting the Jews, who are quite affluent in what they were doing, and the prospective nations who did not want to go back to Israel because according to the Jewish dogma, they recognize that, that they were dispersed throughout the land and they are not to return unless God sends them or God directs them with the mighty right hand as they did when the children of Israel uh, were led by God out of the land of Egypt. That's what they believe. That's what those quote-unquote rebellious Jews believed. And those ones had to be done away with. And so here, so that, a, so that the protest of the state of Israel could be silenced. But after all, we have a mission to fulfill. <laughs> so, outlaw, so let's see. And 18, so, so forged between, eight, okay, this, this document, Jeremy, any other forged between 1871 and 1898 by Otto von Bismarck, co-conspirator of Albert Pike, who were instrumental in bringing about the First World War. Now, the Second World War, must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences between the fascists and the political Zionists. Okay, here we go. This war must be brought about so that Nazism is destroyed and it accomplish that aim and that political Zionism be strong enough to institute a sovereign state of Israel in Palestine. You know, the Jews at this time were living in ghettos. But let me tell you something about the state of Israel. The state of Israel is the, is, has now become the main ghetto for the Jews. You can call me anti-Semite all you want, but let me tell you something. If you love the Jews like you say you do, then you will stop preaching the lie of the 70 weeks of Daniel, and you will stop preaching the lie that a phony antichrist is going to sign a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. You will stop preaching the lie of encouraging the Jews to build a temple so they can start animal sacrifices again and eat and drink damnation to themselves. If you really love the Jews, you will stop preaching that doctrine. But if you don't stop the doctrine, I would have to say you, my friend, who say you support Israel, are the real anti-Semite. Sovereign state of Israel and Palestine. During the Second World War, international communism must become strong enough in order to balance Christendom, okay, which would be then restrained and held in check until the time when we would need it for the final social cataclysm. Could that final social cataclysm be used 
false 70th week prophecy, maybe, possibly. After the Second World War, communism was, was made strong enough to begin taking over weaker governments. In 1945, at the Potsdam Conference between Truman, Churchill, and Stalin, a large portion of Europe was simply handed over to Russia. And on the other side of the world, the aftermath of the war with Japan helped to sweep the tide of communism into China. Okay. Now the Third World War must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences caused by the Asian tour of the Illuminati between the political Zionists and the leaders of the Islamic world. Don't we see that going on now? The war must be conducted in such a way that Islam, the Muslim Arabic world, and political Zionism, the state of Israel, mutually destroy each other. Meanwhile, the other nations, once more divided on this issue, will be constrained to fight to the point of complete physical, moral, spiritual, and economical exhaustion. We shall unleash the nihilist, which is a person who believes in nihilism that existence has no objective meaning, purpose, or intrinsic value. And the nihilist may also refer to nihilist movement, a Russian political and social movement. And the atheist, okay, okay so we shall unleash the nihilist and the atheist and we shall provoke a formidable social cataclysm, which in all its horror will show clearly to the nations the effect of absolute atheism. Atheism is so ungodly. You can kind of throw in the word secularism in there. Atheism is ungodly. This has to be done. And so we have to turn the tide back to religion. Okay? We have to turn the tide back to religion. We have to do away with this atheism. <clears throat> so, folks, those you know, you, you know, folks out there that claim to be atheists, dude, your 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 days are numbered, buddy. Origin of savagery and of the most bloody turmoil. Then everywhere, the citizens obliged to def defend themselves against a world minority of revolutionaries who will exterminate those destroyers of civilization and the multitudes disillusioned with Christianity. I wonder what type of Christianity he means there. Whose deistic spirits will from that moment be without compass or direction, anxious for an ideal, but without knowing where to render its adoration, will receive the true light to the universal, universal Catholic manifestations of the pure doctrine of Lucifer. <clears throat> and you think I've gone too far? All you got to do is watch certain videos of the Easter Vigil in St. Peter's Basilica, and you can hear them specifically say that Lucifer is the father and Jesus Christ is the son. The pure doctrine of Lucifer is Catholicism. And this is to be brought finally out in the public view. This manifestation will result from the general reactionary movement which will follow the destruction of Christianity and atheism, both conquered and exterminated at the same time. Now, 33rd degree Grand Master of Scottish Rite Albert Pike was controlled by Jesuit Jean-Pierre Jean de Smet, who was the most powerful Jesuit of the USA in the 19th century, who also created the USA 14th Amendment and co-founded the Mormon cult. 
Rome had tried to create Los Alambrados, 1492. You know, we got Columbus Day coming out, and that's a very interesting year. 1492 in Spain, but that was banned. Later on, they, cre they created the Society of Jesus in 1534, and this became the Jesuit Order. The Jesuit Order was banned in at least 83 countries, and then they had Jesuit Adam Weishaupt created the Bavarian Illuminati in 1776 as a cover to hide the Jesuit Order so they could remain, power, remain in power. The year 1776 is to be found on the dollar bill and the base of the pyramid. And folks will go and say, well, Adam Weishaupt left the Jesuit order and then founded the Illuminati. Folks, you know what? And a lot of these people <clears throat> that state this will, will be ex-Illuminists themselves. They, I come out of the Illuminati and these types of things. And, you know, Adam Weishaupt was never a Jesuit or he left the Jesuits. You know, come on, really? He was still a graduate of a Jesuit university. So maybe even if he left, quote-unquote, the Jesuits, he was still working with them as a coadjutor. Co <laughs> Pierre-Jean de Smet was born on January 30th, 1801, uh, May 23rd, 1873, also known as Pierre-Jean de Smet, was a Belgian Roman Catholic priest and member of the Society of Jesus. Active in, active in missionary work among the Native Americans of the Midwestern United States and Western United States in the mid-19th century. His extensions travels as a missionary were said to total 180,000 miles. He was known as the friend of Sitting Bull because he persuaded the Sioux War Chief to participate in negotiations with the United States government for the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie. So Albert Pike was essentially a Jesuit coadjutor. Now, since we're on the topic of war, I'm going to read two paragraphs from the extreme oath of the Jesuits, okay? And I'm almost done here. And we're going to continue these, this section of current events in tomorrow's broadcast. So, this, I believe, is the second paragraph of the uh, um, Jesuit order. After, you know, when the superior speaks, he states, quote, You have been taught to insidiously plant the seeds of jealousy and hatred between communities, provinces, states that were at peace. I wonder who these states are. Protestant states? And incite them to deeds of blood involving them in war with each other. Protestants attacking Protestants? What did World War II essentially do? Well, here's America, the great Protestant country. You know, they are infused with this patriotism. Hey, you know what? As long as the Catholics are, you know, belong to America, we're Americans. And so therefore we have to fight this war. But in a sense, they are bombing Protestant cities in Germany and essentially filling Germany with blood of their own brother of their own brethren. Protestants fighting Protestants. 
and to create revolutions, and that includes the American Revolution and civil wars in countries, and that includes the civil war here, that were independent and prosperous. And who are the prosperous nations? The Protestant ones, cultivating the arts and the sciences and enjoying the blessings of peace. To take sides with the combatants and to act secretly with your brother Jesuit who might be engaged on the other side, but openly opposed to that which you might be connected, only that the church might be the gainer in the end and the conditions fixed in the treaty of peace and that the end justifies the means. So here you go. So here, this, this order, this society of Jesus, they are working behind the scenes, fomenting all these wars, while the white pope, the man in white, goes around acting like, acts like the man of peace. And hey, as long as the church, as long as the Vatican achieves its goal of establishing itself as supreme ruler of the world, then the end justifies the means. I don't care if blood has to be spilled. I don't care if deception has to be brought about. Just make the ends justify the means. And the means is to establish this one world government, this new world order, which is nothing but the old world order, the dark ages, restored. That's what exactly what it is. I, further, I furthermore promise and declare that I will, when opportunity present, make and wage relentless war, secretly or openly, against all heretics, Protestants, and liberals, as I am directed to do. To extirpate, exterminate, they don't care if they kill their own kind. They don't care if they kill their own Catholic brethren. As long as the end justifies the means. As I'm directed to do, to extirpate and exterminate them from the face of the whole earth, and that I will spare neither age, sex, or condition, and that I will hang, waste, boil, flay, strangle, and bury alive these infamous heretics, rip up the stomachs and wounds of their women, and crush their infants' heads against the walls in order to annihilate forever their execrable race, that when the same cannot be done openly, I will secretly use the poison cup, the strangulating cord, the steel of the poniard, or the lead and bullet, regardless of the honor, rank, dignity, or authority of the person or persons, whatever may be their condition in life, either public or private, as I at any time may be directed so to do by an agent of the Pope or superior of the Brotherhood of the Holy Faith of the Society of Jesus." Okay, now out of the Global Vatican, page 153, <clears throat> former ambassador to the Holy See, Francis Rooney, received a package from President Bush at the time, okay? And, and this package basically gave uh, him his agenda, his mission, and so, a letter of instruction, official instruction, basically. And so, this, so I'm going to quote from a portion of this book, which states, quote, a letter of official instructions from President Bush to then-appointed ambassador to the Holy See, Francis Rooney. Quote, our commitment to freedom is America's tradition. you got to ask yourself, what kind of freedom are they talking about? Is it freedom to be Catholic or freedom to practice your other religions so as long as you acknowledge the supremacy of the Pope? Is this America's tradition? The advance of freedom is also the surest way to undermine terror and tyranny and to promote peace and prosperity. Your task is to help in advancing this great cause by, number one, waging a relentless global war, and I put the word crusade in there, 
to defeat those who seek to harm us, which is radical fundamentalists, who they attributed to Islam. But you actually look at the real definition of fundamentals, it's basically historicists, historicist Protestants, those who realize who the Antichrist is. So let's have our fun. Let's get rid of these fundamentalist Islams. And then after the fundamentalist Islams are done away with, you're next. Because by that time, we're going to have everybody together in one lump soup. And they're going to be doing a God of service by conducting a crusade against those fundamentalists, which are the ones who are exclusive from us, who remain exclusive, who remain separate. And how fitting that <laughs> President George W. Bush actually uh, used the word crusade in, <laughs> in an article dated September 21st, 2001. Crusade references out of the Wall Street Journal. Crusade reference reinforces fears war on terrorism is against Muslims. Here we go. There could hardly have been a more delicate gift, gaff, gaffe. President Bush vowed on Sunday to rid the world of evildoers. Then cautioned, quote, this crusade, and then he stopped, and he said this war on terrorism is going to take a while, end quote. So did he have a little bit of a slip up there? He might have. He might have done it purposely because people have long forgotten what the Crusades are. And, well, well, maybe not. They just get a watered-down history of it, you know. And they call it Christian, okay, you know. But it's not Christian, it's Catholic. <laughs> and so, and obviously, the Muslims know about the history of the Crusades. Well, so here we go. Here's the Pope using the phrase crusade, which was in a sense a holy war, and he's calling it a crusade. So is this war based on religion, or is it just based on politics? He uses the word himself, crusade. So he's basically telling you what all this rigmarole in the Middle East is. It is a crusade. In order to make the ends justify the means, and as long as it attributes to the primacy of the church, so waging a relentless global war or crusade to defeat those who seek to harm us and our friends, which is inclusive. You know, our friends would be those that are inclusive, which means are in together with the Vatican and U.S. relations. Vatican and U.S. and their allies. And number two, overcoming the faceless enemies of human dignity, including disease, starvation, and poverty. That would be those deemed exclusive to to those deemed exclusive to goals, the like the 17 goals of the uh, the 2030 agenda from the UN. This is that faceless enemies of human dignity, uh, including diseases. You have forced vaccinations you can throw in there. I need big pharma, pharma and, other, and other pharmaceuticals, which equate to sorceries in the Bible. Mm -hmm. This is a word called pharmakia. 
and starvation, which is basically the redistribution of wealth, stealing, theft, one cashless and digital currency, and also to create only two classes, super rich and super poor. And make it to the point where the super poor is dependent on the super rich. Okay? Now, those are my comments in there. Without those comments, it will just say wage our commitment to freedom, you know, la da da And it will say just wage a relentless global war to defeat those who seek to harm us and our friends, overcoming the faceless enemies of human dignity, including disease, starvation, and the poverty. And then again, it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Matthew 24, 4 through 7, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Wars and rumors of wars. The Pope masquerades as a man of peace, while it is the black Pope working behind the scenes on both sides of the conflict, fomenting the various conflict conflicts in this world. And so with that, since we uh, got done talking about the context of this war, we went through eight pages of this PDF, and tomorrow's broadcast, we're going to be looking at these global goals. And looking at some more words of the beast, as long as well as looking at some more history of the development of the papacy from Gregory the Seventh to Boniface the Eighth. So I am glad those that have listened or are listening have tuned in. And until next time, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow evening. Truth be told, truth be known. Stay safe. God bless. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.